This is 20 Pages a Week, where together you and I will read all the way through the Bible in a year. I'm Hal Hammonds, and I'm here to help. I'll supply one story that grabbed my attention, one verse I found particularly interesting, and one word I couldn't get out of my mind. The rest is up to you. This is Quarter 2, Lesson 3. The reading is the book of Esther. We'll start with my first impressions. How is there not a major motion picture about the book of Esther? I suppose the ship has sailed on that with our carnal culture these days. We're not making any more Ten Commandments movies or anything such as that. So I suppose the time has passed for a decent, big-budget adaptation for the silver screen of the book of Esther has passed. And that's a shame, because this story has it all. An ordinary woman, a virtuous man, an evil villain... An impetuous king, enormous consequences, ultimately your happy ending, and a lasting legacy. That's what Esther provides for us. And I don't doubt that Jews of ancient times were able to look at the book of Esther and receive real and substantial inspiration for carrying on as ordinary people in an extraordinary world, facing extraordinary circumstances. That's how we look at Esther today. It's certainly how I look at Esther. We are the little guy facing enormous odds. But God's with us. Even if, as has oftentimes been observed, the name of God does not appear in Esther, we see the hand of God throughout. And that encourages us as we look through our lives looking for some kind of indication that God is involved and oftentimes not finding it. God's there. Maybe we just have to look a little harder. Of course, there's really only one story in the book of Esther. I'm going to look at one particular part of it in the latter half of chapter 5. As Haman's star is on the rise, as the king is very much favoring him, looks like he can do no wrong, when it looks like he's on the top of the world, he goes out and sees his old adversary Mordecai. And all of that good feeling, all of that positivity, all of that joy is just sapped right out of him. It's a shame that we feel that way sometimes. If we are not completely and totally happy, and oftentimes if our enemy is not completely and totally miserable, there's just nothing good in the world. And of course, the story of Esther is charting how this arrogance, this conceit on our part, oftentimes paves the way for our own destruction, such as the case with Haman, certainly. We'll never know for sure what would have happened if Haman had been content with being, for practical purposes, the vice emperor of the world. All we know is he wasn't. He had to have his vindication. He had to feel good about himself, and that meant bringing down somebody else. We have the same kind of problem, though, don't we? We just really, really struggle with the idea of contentment. God has blessed us and blessed us and blessed us again, and yet we cannot find our way to joy. We cannot find our way to satisfaction. And oftentimes we destroy ourselves because of that. You don't have to have everything go your way for God to be with you, for you to find joy, for you to have hope for the future. You need faith. You need contentment. God will help us find that if we're interested in finding it. We all know about Esther 414, of course. Who knows whether you have attained royalty for such a time as this, as Mordecai tells Esther. Supposedly the theme of Esther, this idea of providence, that God is with us, and 
by simply doing our job, by simply showing up, we may be able to accomplish far more than we realize. But I'd like to turn your attention to chapter 9 and verse number 26 and 27. Again, bending the rules a little bit. In verse 26 and 27, we have the completion of this entire story that began with the casting of lots, or purr. Haman decided randomly, with a throw of the dice, as it were, when and how to dispense with his enemy, the Jews. And apparently the Jews seized upon this idea, the idea that they were victims of chance, that everything was up in the air, that they had no control over such things. But in those moments, we need to be reminded that God is in control, even in the casting of lots. Chapter 9, verse 26 reads, Therefore they called these days Purim, after the name of Pur. And because of the instruction in this letter, both what they had seen in this regard and what had happened to them, the Jews established and made a custom for themselves, their descendants, and for all those who allied themselves with them, so that they would not fail to celebrate these two days according to their regulation and according to their appointed time annually. That's verse 27 as well. It seems like the point that the Jews were emphasizing here is that God is ultimately in control of such things. We see in the Old Testament over and over again that God is able to turn unfortunate circumstances, seemingly uncontrollable circumstances, in his favor, in favor of his people, and accomplish great things, not just despite the best efforts of the world, but oftentimes in weird ways because of them. The Jews are in better shape after the events in the book of Esther than they ever were before, when it looked just a few weeks before like the Jews might cease to exist entirely. It all seems like random chance. And I'm not suggesting here that God is deliberately forcing every single event in every single person's life for the entirety of history. I don't believe that. But I do believe, because the Bible teaches it over and over again, that there is providence, that God does watch his people, that he provides for them in ways that they cannot possibly understand or predict. By trusting in him in these questionable days, by leaning on him when it looks like we are completely out of control, by simply doing the best we can in these circumstances, God is able to work wonderful things in us. And oftentimes it takes some perspective. It takes backing up a few years and watching at the events that have transpired in the past for us to realize how powerful our God is and how much he loves us and how involved he is in our everyday lives. The word for the week is Jews. It could hardly be anything else. For the first time on a regular basis, over and over again, we see this word used as a reference to the people of God. We've seen Israelites and Hebrews to this point, and maybe a few times this reference to the descendants of Judah, not just the descendants of Israel, but the tribe of Judah particularly. Jews occurs over and over again in the book of Esther, because for practical purposes, every other aspect of the people of God is gone. Only Judah remains. There are vestiges of the other tribes, especially Levi. But the vast majority of the people who remain, who still hold to the God of heaven, are from the tribe of Judah, hence the word Jews. And we've heard that word used as a pejorative throughout history. Blame the Jews. It's the Jews' fault. Ugly figures of speech have been adopted over the years. And as unfortunate as that is, it's just as bad or worse for the word Christian to be used that way. And we see that more and more in our society. People assume that if something is associated with Christian, it must be a bad thing, or at the very least, a questionable thing. 
Back in chapter 3, verse 8, remember, this is Haman's argument in the first place for destroying the Jews. They're different from everybody else. They have a different law than everybody else. They're rebellious. They're not as committed to civil government and to civil leaders as other people likely are going to be. It'd just be best to get rid of them entirely. People think that way about Christians, too. It's easy for us to believe in America that that is somehow a blip on the radar. It's an unusual sort of thing, a new development. But we read in the New Testament that's the way it was in the very early days. And if we find ourselves on the wrong end of persecution because of the name we wear, that is not an unusual kind of thing. As Peter says in chapter 4 and verse 17 of his first epistle, don't regret being identified as the people of God. Rejoice in the name that you wear. Be proud of it. Yes, it comes with consequences, negative consequences oftentimes. People have lost their lives because of this name. But if the significance of the name we wear is that we are attached to the true God of heaven, that we are identified as people of faith, people who are bound for heaven, then what's wrong with that name? Go ahead and use it. Be proud of that name. And if the consequences come, they come. We know the ultimate consequence of confessing Jesus Christ is a heavenly home for all of eternity. With that in view, we can take whatever comes our way while we're waiting. Thanks for listening to 20 Pages a Week. Please don't hesitate to reach out with your stories about your trip through the Bible this year. I'd love to hear from you. If you like what you hear, please subscribe and share with your friends. And check out my other podcast, Citizen of Heaven. I'll see you next week. We'll be reading the book of Job, a much longer reading this time. God bless. Keep reading.